0: Welcome to the Surrender Podcast. Surrender is a collective of Christian groups and organisations from across Australia. We work in unity to share Jesus' call to seek his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. We create spaces for the sharing of stories that motivate, support, and equip people to love their neighbour, share good news, and live justly, both locally and globally. Please note, Surrender provides spaces for conversation and storytelling and does not necessarily endorse the personal views of any one presenter. This is Brooke Prentice and Reverend Jeff Broughton's Bible study entitled Justice, Reconciliation and Recognition. Jeff Broughton is a research scholar for the Public and Contextual Theology Research Centre and a lecturer in practical theology at St Mark's National Theological Centre. He's also the Rector of Paddington Anglican Church in Sydney. Brooke Prentice is an Aboriginal Christian leader, a descendant of the Waka Waka Nation of Queensland, and is the Aboriginal spokesperson for Common Grace. She's also part of Doomba, TIER Australia's Indigenous Support Program, and the Salvation Army's Indigenous Reference Group, and coordinates the grass tree gathering. Their Bible study will explore what these highly contentious and hotly contested words, justice, reconciliation and recognition, along with their promises and problems mean for Aboriginal peoples embodying the way of Jesus Christ. This is part two of their Bible study entitled, Embodying Reconciliation, Jesus and the Great Australian Silence.
1: Great. Well, welcome to the Yarning Circle for day two here at Surrender. Uh, and um, my name is Brooke Prentice, and I'm a Waka Waka woman, an Aboriginal Christian leader. Uh, and this is Reverend Dr. Jeff Broughton, who's an Anglican priest and uh, uh, practical theologian lecturing in um, theology at St. Mark's uh, Theological College in Canberra. Uh, so just today, I again wanted to start uh, with an acknowledgement Oh, too loud now. <laughs> is, that to is that all right? Uh,
2: I've been telling you that for ages. And <laughs> <of this>
1: uh, <laughs> all the other people, yeah. Sorry. yeah. Well, they've got to look out for the audio and everything. But yeah. Is
3: that
2: but it's about time the indigenous voice is the loudest. <laughs> <thing that>. <laughs> <laughs> all
1: right. So, is that okay now? We're good, Amy? <laughs> we? yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, so we're again going to start with an acknowledgement of country. And for those of you that were here yesterday, you participated in a welcome to country. And I just want to make sure that people understand what the difference is. So a welcome to country is done by a local Aboriginal elder. And Aunty Diker is an elder of the Wurundjeri peoples of whose land we're on. An acknowledgement of country can be done by any person. You can do it in your personal life, from a public perspective, Every time I'm on a plane and I land in someone else's country, I acknowledge their country um, as a personal prayer of thanksgiving to God uh, for placing those Aboriginal peoples um, there over 60,000 years ago. And when we do this acknowledgement of country, we remember that there are over 300 nations of Aboriginal peoples in this land that we now call Australia. And so, um, yeah, that's what I wanted to share. for me, personally, as an Aboriginal person, where this is not my country, um, I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and gather and yarn today, the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. And uh, I pay my respects to their elders' past, present and future. When I give an acknowledgement of country on uh, back at home on Gubby country, or Turrbal country, or Yagara country, I often add these words that I thank the elders for the way they refresh, revitalise and maintain culture. It's important for me as a young Aboriginal person of um, the traditional custodians that I've learnt from and my Aboriginal Christian leaders, some of who are here today, and I acknowledge um, Uncle Graham Paulson and Aunty Iris Paulson, um, and the others from around the country, the other aunties and uncles. um, And for the way they have invested in my life and taught me how my, aboriginality and my christianity are one and the same and they fit together and i thank them for that and when i use those words of refresh revitalize and maintain culture um one of the people i think about is Arnie dyker who i've been able to learn from um and i spend a lot of time here on the Randru country and um she expressed yesterday the important things that she has done uh and yeah it's really important to acknowledge that so that's what it means for me personally and um, each of you, as your hearts and minds are touched by Aboriginal people and understand that we've been here for 60,000 years, will see different things to bring to your own acknowledgements of country. So just here at this uh, Bible study today, uh, we just remember briefly the journey that we're coming along. So yesterday uh, we looked at recognition, embodying recognition. Today we're walking through embodying reconciliation and then tomorrow embodying justice. Um, so I'm just going to hand over to Jeff.
2: Thanks, Brooke. Uh, it's obvious that we're a bigger crowd than we were yesterday morning, and uh, rather than me giving a brief summary for those who weren't here, I'm hoping that a couple of people who can be disciplined enough to be really brief might come forward to the microphone and just share something of what was significant or challenging from yesterday if you were here, so that those who weren't here just have a little sense of some of what we covered. Uh, so th- those of you who are pastors, you're going to be closer to 20 seconds and 20 minutes. You're really going to have to be <laughs> a couple of short sentences, but hopefully a couple of people are willing to come forward and just share something of what happened when we gathered here this time yesterday morning for the benefit of those who have joined us this morning only. And just come forward to use the mic, please, so that others... Um, here, three come
4: out, please. Yeah. Hi. I'm never a friend of these microphones. Um, anyway, my name's Amy, and I was really touched by, um, Brooks uh, a bit ability to articulate our failure to stay awake. Um, and that however much um, <coughs> Aboriginal peoples and culture are recognized, there's it's always recognition as, as a first step. We're always seem to be taking the first step. And so one of our reasons for being gathering together is to sort of dream together, pray, and act in order to take that second step. And Following on from that, um, Jeff led us through um, a study in Luke. It started with Luke 19 and the story of Zacchaeus um, and that being the response of a rich man. But we went, we backtracked to just before that to two other stories of rich men who um, Jesus confronted. There was um, the rich man and Lazarus um, and there was the rich one no ruler two rich people who um, didn't have a change of heart and by contrast you then come onto this third story of Zacchaeus who is a rich man who has an encounter with Jesus and undergoes this transformational total reversal um, and then we tied that back to how that reversal, that change in um, our, our hearts, the place that has in reconciliation.
2: I wish all my students listened to that carefully. Thank you very much. Anyone else would like to share? You've probably got time for one more. So someone get up at the back. Yeah, I
4: did.
2: hopefully that gives you a little window, if you weren't here yesterday and what we did yesterday morning. Uh, more of us, I think, were gathered around the campfire yesterday afternoon, and I know personally, and just about everyone i talked to is there, found that very significant, very moving. And in some senses, what we're going to be talking about today, uh, yesterday was a perfect demonstration. Last night, Shane talked about demonstration plots. That was a demonstration of the kind of issues we're going to be exploring to the, in this morning's Bible study. Before we get there, let me just say something, because I'm not going to talk too much about this when we, when we get to the Bible passage for today, but just let me say something about forgiveness that I think needs to be said in the context of what happened this afternoon. Uh, I've thought and spoken and written quite a bit about forgiveness. One of the people that has helped my thinking, shake my th- thinking, is dead now, but as an old Another Anglican, English Anglican named Charlie Moore. And he taught me three things about forgiveness that I think have stayed with me. The first is, he said, forgiveness is undoubtedly costly to those offering the forgiveness. That little expression, it takes it out of him. Uh, I think this is an important reminder. Uh, Brooke might say something later this morning about Bonhoeffer talked about cheap forgiveness. And there's always a risk that we cheapen forgiveness. So Charlie Mool said that forgiveness, it takes it out of you. And I think we saw that demonstrate to us this afternoon. The second thing he said, the essential thing about forgiveness is its generosity. Uh, and flowing from those two is that it remains free. So forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is an act of, of generosity or a gift and free. And I just want to say something about that. What struck me yesterday afternoon as I participated in that welcome to country but particularly as I observed Ani only die and it's been actually the same with all the Aboriginal Christian friends I have Brooke, Ray Minnick and many others has been their readiness to forgive uh, that's been their gift to me and to us, it's been your gift to me um, we should not underestimate that But it is a gift. One of the things we tend to do in Christian circles, people like me, preachers and theologians, often guilty of it, is to want to rush to forgiveness, to make forgiveness into a demand, particularly of victims. And so we just need to be really cautious that we remember in our desire for forgiveness, in prioritising forgiveness, that forgiveness retains that essential character of being a gift of being free, of being something that is offered. And I can testify, as I'm sure many of you can, testify to the readiness, the willingness, the strong desire of Aboriginal Christians to forgive. There's never something that can be demanded because it is a gift. Okay, I think that's enough on forgiveness. I could talk all day, but that's not my, my brief. So I'm going to throw back to Brooke, who's going to introduce the theme of reconciliation with repentance, so you see the connection.
1: So part of what we looked at yesterday with recognition and then reconciliation today, and where Jeff and I have worked together is about looking at the way recognition and reconciliation have been used uh, in this land that we now call Australia, how they've been used in the political, and how that has led to a postponement of justice for Aboriginal peoples uh, in Australia. And so uh, then when we look at the theological, for me, there's a great way forward where we can really, we need to understand how we use these words, um, but how we need to use them in a different way. And Jeff's touched on reconciliation with repentance is what's required. So I'm just going to take us through a reflection about reconciliation in Australia. Reconciliation. For us, we are talking about capital R, Reconciliation, being the reconciliation between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples in this land we now call Australia. Reconciliation, for me, it's a word with split meaning. It's a word that brings hope, but also haunts me. It's a word that has opened doors into churches for Aboriginal Christians, but also a word that is often barely recognized by the churches. It's a word that sometimes I love, but sometimes I hate. A word that has become cheap and complacent. Reconciliation, or should I say conciliation. If you were in my Indigenous sister from Canada, Cheryl Bear's workshop yesterday, you would have heard her say the same thing. I've said it many times before, and other Aboriginal Christians have as well. And why, but the particular thing about conciliation in this country is that it's based in our political, going back to 1787, when King George III's instructions to Captain Arthur Phillip at St. James's Court on the 25th of April 1787 contained these words. You are to endeavour by every possible means to open an intercourse with the natives and to conciliate their affections. Enjoining all our subjects to live in amity and kindness with them. When we look at where we are in Australia 230 years later, in 2017, where reconciliation has not been achieved, maybe we should look at these original instructions and actually be working for conciliation. Reconciliation, a word that has been in my vocabulary since I was 11 years old, which coincidentally was 1991. Those of you familiar with our injustices will recognise the significance of that year, being the year the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody tabled their findings and 339 recommendations in Federal Parliament. Deaths in Custody, where today we have had more Aboriginal deaths in custody since the Royal Commission than we had before the Royal Commission. Despite in custody where only a handful of recommendations have ever been implemented. So when this government says the words Royal Commission, I think it's a waste of money and time. We need to look back at those 339 recommendations and just implement them. The answers are all there. Reconciliation, an event or state of being that I thought as a 17 year old in the 1990s would be achieved within a couple of years. Reconciliation to me then and still today, 20 years later, meant schools teaching about the true history of Australia. It meant being treated as an equal citizen in my country, bringing an end to racism and a treaty. Maybe the naivety of a 17-year-old or the dreams of a 17-year-old. The overturning of Terranalius in the Mabo decision in 1992 as I began high school surely meant the next step would be a treaty We even sang about it. In um, 2017, we are still the only Commonwealth nation and one of the last liberal democracies without a treaty or treaties with its First Peoples. When Australian governments have made over 2,000 treaties internationally, surely one with your First Peoples can't be that hard. In 2017, some 20 years after finishing high school, The reality feels like Australia is further away from achieving reconciliation than in the 1990s. And this is the problem. The lack of reconciliation impacts my life. It impacts your Aboriginal brothers and sisters on a daily basis. And why have we not achieved reconciliation? For me, it's because we've misused these words in the political landscape of this country This Bible study will hopefully help you to see that part of the reason that we're still waiting for justice for Aboriginal peoples awaits nearly 250 years old. The reason that justice has been postponed is because of the way we have used or not used reconciliation in this nation. I said yesterday that I belong to a peoples who for 60,000 years, for over 2,000 generations have left footprints on this ancient and living land. I belong to a people who for a hundred generations have waited for recognition, reconciliation and justice. My hopes, my dreams, my prayers, my desire for reconciliation come from sitting at the feet of Aboriginal elders and leaders from many Aboriginal nations, from kneeling at the foot of the cross, seeking to love Jesus, love my neighbour and love my enemy, from truth-telling and from a desire of building relationships. I've said publicly for many years that I would rather call reconciliation friendship. If we thought about it as making friends, maybe Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples, I think we could close that gap a lot quicker. I said at the beginning, sometimes I hate the word reconciliation. I hate the word reconciliation where there is no action, no truth, no justice. Jeff and I talk about the fact there can be no reconciliation without repentance, and Jeff will reflect on that shortly. And Jeff and I have categorized the politics of reconciliation in Australia, and when you look at our modern history, you can categorize it this way yourself, into three generations. The optimism of the 1960s, the opportunities of the 1990s, and the outlook for the 2020s. So I'm just gonna get us to stand up. So I want you to stand up if you were around in the 1960s. Those of us around in the 1990s can stand up and join. No, stay standing. And now for the next generation to stand up as we all stand together. I'm going to stay seated. And I want you to look at each other. Look at each other and see Jesus. Look at each other and see your friend. Look at each other and see the healing we all need. The Australia we all need. The Australia that I dream of that is built on truth, justice, love and hope. The new Australia where ancient hosts and old and new guests learn to walk together in friendship into the 2020s. We're in this together. Let us today here standing as three generations from the 75 year olds to the 17 year olds, let us not postpone justice any longer. Let us actually bring the action to reconciliation. You can all sit down. And let us bring an end to the great Australian silence, the cult of forgetfulness. Phrases first coined in the 1960s by W.E.H. Stanner in his Boyle Lectures of 1968, and if you haven't read them, go back and read them. And I hear this word post-colonial sometimes used, and it often perplexes me as much as reconciliation does. Post-colonial describes an academic aspiration, but it is not the Aboriginal reality which means that a public theology of justice grounded in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus must be able to name transparently and remember truthfully Aboriginal injustices. A Christian stance regarding Aboriginal justice is not a return to the single or comprehensive ideal that can be promoted under the banner of God's justice in the public sphere. Christian justice, our justice. To be publicly credible and politically plausible must always reject any account of justice that relies upon coercive force employed by those possessing power. So often the justice of the dominant becomes the dominant justice. We need to look no further than Aboriginal deaths in custody. We need look no further than the floors of Parliament House or our national newspapers last week when we look at the attack on native title to help the dominant mining companies The attack of 18C and then the Racial Discrimination Act to help the dominant apparently get free speech. To me, there seems to be much free speech. The dominant justice in Australia has been built on this cult of forgetfulness. Bonhoeffer articulated that cheap cheap grace is first and foremost preaching forgiveness without repentance. Reconciliation so far in Australia shows that cheap grace is political reconciliation Without remembering, repenting, confessing, and forgiving. Surely, as Christians, we know the meanings of these words, and we can lead the way through love for one another to a reconciliation that includes remembering, repenting, confessing, and forgiving. I'll hand over to Jeff. That's
4: the Bible Rick,
1: Oh, read yeah. Read to uh, does someone have a Bible that they would be willing to read for us?
2: John 21. Can you come and use the mic for us John 21. <laughs> 1
3: Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment round him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred metres. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead.
2: Thank you. What's your name? Yeah, thanks Mia. Hopefully what you're feeling now or sensing is some of the tension in this space that we desire, we long for true justice, <laughs> true moments of conciliation or reconciliation, like we participate in round the campfire this afternoon. I suspect there's no person who doesn't want that. Yet, like forgiveness, we can't force it. There's not just merely political solutions to things like we can't legislate it. So how do we move forward? How do we walk together, as Brooke appealed to us yesterday afternoon? How do we walk together into moments like we shared yesterday afternoon? And I think this story of Jesus' resurrection appearance appearance to Peter actually offers some insight. So we're going to look at it together. And in some ways this story anticipates the more famous story and I think you can see similar things happening there of the risen Jesus appearing to Saul who becomes Paul on the Damascus Road. But we're going to deal with this perhaps less famous but very similar story of these post-resurrection appearances that are captured for us in the Gospels. Uh, It's hardly surprising whether you're looking at Acts chapter 9 and 22 and 26, that story is told three times of Saul's encounter on the Damascus Road, or here in John 21, that the Biblical stories remember in some detail, with all its drama and some of the lively dialogue of what happens when people met the risen Jesus. And the first thing to say to the non-Aboriginal people gathered here like me is we can learn from our Aboriginal brothers and sisters how to remember. To remember in ways that we have never understood. Again, like we saw demonstrated yesterday afternoon, those deep connections between country. Both the land and the life it sustains. The memory of ancestors and what they taught. The spaces we inhabit as a result and the spirit that indwells. You see, the most common way that non Aboriginal people like me think about land is a block of land like a block of wood or a block of stone. But as many of you know, as we heard yesterday afternoon as we were welcomed to this particular country, this is a definable location with borders where many personal important events have taken place, where bonding has occurred, where life and death and burial has all been celebrated and more importantly remembered. And so those of us who aren't Aboriginal need to recognise that as we come to stories like this that involve remembering, we have a lot to learn from our Aboriginal brothers and sisters who know what it is to remember. And for reconciliation to happen, for there to be true and lasting repentance, we need to know how to remember. often skipped over, but do you notice that this story of Peter's, if you like, repentance actually focuses on geographical locations. There was a courtyard fire previously where three times Peter denied Jesus. Again, scholars like me are good at noticing the three times we don't notice there's a fire. I'll say a bit more about that. And here, around another fire, Peter is reinstated. Friend and colleague uh, at St Mark's in Canberra, where I work, and known to many of you I know, John Harris, has written about this. It's helped me understand. I love campfires. I've been going camping and hiking in the bush and then camping and four-wheel driving most of my life. I've spent endless hours around fires. But John has helped me, as a non-Aboriginal person, understand something of what a fire, the campfire, means for Aboriginal peoples. It is home. Home is where the campfire is built. And it could be anywhere on country. Not any particular place on country is home. Home is where the campfire is built. That is where people gather. It's where all those important ceremonies took place where connection was reaffirmed and established, particularly in meeting places. And so here we have in this story in John chapter 21 two things that white fellows like me can easily skip over. The importance of remembering, the importance of the campfire. And they're right here in this story. So if I can just have a little word of advice to my non-Aboriginal brothers and sisters. Can you sit down and open the Bible? Occasionally sit down and open the Bible with an Aboriginal brother and sister and get them to help you understand what's going on. Use the commentators, use scholars like me, we'll be of some help. But hopefully I'm showing you that our Aboriginal brothers and sisters have ways of understanding that help us. So let's look at this story, a story about remembering, a story around a campfire, and see how repentance takes shape. The first thing we see is the way Peter's wrongdoing. He's denied Jesus. He's not followed Jesus to the foot of the cross. How that is remembered. And this is the difficult, painful part of it. Remembering begins in failure, in retreat, in disappointment. That's where Peter has been since his denial. Since his denial... It's not been a good few days. And Peter's previous confession of Christ, we go back to the middle of the Gospels. In all four Gospels, in fact, it's one of the few things all four Gospels record, is Peter's confession. You are the Messiah, God's anointed one. It was Peter who said those things. So his, his denial is even more poignant. It's even more of a failure. He's gone from the peak of being the only one to say, to recognise publicly. Jesus' true identity to being the one who three times. How are we to understand this? Well, the best way is to understand wrongdoing relationally. We need to name what Peter does, not formally in terms of things like sin or even in terms like values like a failure of nerve. No, his wrongdoing is these three things. His allegiance to Jesus. If publican forgets, he now abandons that. His acceptance of his calling. He was called by Jesus with his brother John and others to follow. So he's not only denied his allegiance, he's abandoned his calling and he had this authentic role of leadership amongst the 12. He was one of the three, the inner circle, Peter, James and John. And many people, particularly our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters amongst us, think he was the preeminent one amongst those three. Let's not get into a theological debate about that, but whatever way you cut it, Peter had a significant leadership role. And at all three of those levels, in terms of his allegiance to Jesus, His acceptance of a calling to follow Jesus and his authentic leadership role, he has done the wrong thing. And so for the last few days, he's been living with that sense of he's been disloyal to Jesus. He has denounced his calling to follow Jesus. He has defected from the 12. The 12 are dispersed. They're not where they should be. They're hiding in some room. One of the ways that helps me see this wrongdoing is the theory and practice of restorative justice that I know a little bit about. And this is how we are to name wrongdoing in its relational sense. Peter reversing his previous confession of Christ. Failure in allegiance. Peter abandoning his calling as a disciple he returns to fishing for mere fish, remember he was called to become a fisher of people and here what do we find him doing he's abandoned that calling, he's back fishing for fish Uh, and whilst he continues to exert influence and power over the group over the twelve, it's in the wrong direction rather than helping them follow Jesus, he's actually led them back to their fishing careers first thing I want to say about this context of reconciliation between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples in Australia is these relational dimensions are often overlooked in our public and political life. It's painful, it's difficult to do, and we saw it happen yesterday afternoon. But the relational distance that exists between too many Christian Aboriginal people and Christian non-Aboriginal people we heard who was it sorry yesterday and yeah, you're taking notes seriously. Sorry, your name yeah. Pan named it for 75 years she's existing churches and not been told the story of Aboriginal people. How many people in our churches have never genuinely been friends with an Aboriginal person in our non-Aboriginal churches? <laughs> You see, we as Australians mostly live in suburban, middle-class neighbourhoods and don't regularly interact enough with Aboriginal people. The second way we put the relational distance is we relegate things like dispossession of land and destruction of culture to a distant past. Yes, it happened, but it was a long time ago, wasn't it? And plus, didn't Rudd apologise for all that. I've heard people say, no. We can't just relegate to the past. The third way, and I know I've probably been as guilty as this of some of us here, to regard the contemporary injustices, the kind of things Brooks naming in terms of death, deaths and custody, as the responsibility of the government. Or other things, the responsibility of those land councils. It's not my responsibility. When I am relationally distant, I can easily absolve myself from all that. I don't know any Aboriginal people. It all happened a long time ago. Someone else should solve that. What we saw yesterday, standing in front of Aunty Dye, it's not so easy to make those kind of excuses, is it? They, They just don't hold up. And so one of the key things we will say this morning, and Brooke will finish this. Sorry, I'm going to steal your thunder, but that's okay. Repetition is good in teaching. The call to reconciliation is at its heart a call to friendship, a call to relational proximity, be in relationship with each other. What happens here at surrender, what maybe starts here for some of us at surrender, needs to continue build those friendships, stay close to each other. And the churches, our churches are often the ideal place for that to happen. So I talked about naming wrongdoing relationally. We almost also need to remember wrongdoing rightly. I just hinted at some of the ways we remember wrongly. And again, we begin this where relationship is denied where people are forgotten, where the known has become unrecognisable. That's exactly what's happening in John 21. This Jesus who Peter and the disciples have just spent three years day and night with, appears to them unrecognisable. And so Peter's encounter with the risen Jesus begins just after daybreak, in dark, barely lit places, where can see a bit but not quite enough to be sure. Peter is on a very familiar beach, the Sea of Tiberias, doing very familiar things. He's fishing. Now some people judge all this as rather harshly on Peter. How on earth can he go back to all this? This is aimless desperation on Peter's part. How should Peter remember his courtyard denial? Is fishing just a convenient way for him to forget? Forget his own failure? More crucially, how might Peter remember rightly his allegiance to Jesus? How might he remember again his acceptance of the call to follow Jesus? How might he remember his authentic leadership role amongst the twelve? Again, sometimes preachers like me get a bit distracted in these stories by a miraculous catch of fish and the symbolism of the number and the tearing of the net. And look, that's all important, I'm not going to do any of that this morning, I'm sorry to disappoint you. But I want to focus in on some other things. And to do this, I need to just have a little brief um, excursus on the role of memory. Um, been a lot of research done recently in the last decade or 15 years on how memory works, particularly as uh, we learn more about the brain. And so history, memory and forgetting have been rich areas of um, research for a whole range of disciplines. For our purposes, how do Australians, I'm talking here about non-Aboriginal Australians, how do we remember the wrongdoing done to Aboriginal people? What can this story in John chapter 1 tell us about that? And also, secondarily, it's not my main point, how should Aboriginal people Remember the wrongdoing done to them. The debate we saw earlier this year over the meaning name of January 26 is just one example of this in our public life. And again, Brook's already mentioned Stannis' piercing assessment of what he calls our cult of forgetfulness. He's talking mainly there to non-Aboriginal people like me for too long a settler myth where Australia was found not invaded has dominated both popular consciousness and public education and you can feel the backlash against that when it's challenged Australia wasn't found for too long the legal fiction of terra nullius, a land belonging to nobody, permitted dispossession, destruction and death So this cult of forgetfulness, it's kind of a cute phrase, is neither benign or innocent. We have not remembered rightly. And theologian Miroslav Bolt says there is something happening when we remember uh, that is two things going on when we remember. When we remember, we're also doing something. When I remember, I am learning how to live a kind of life that either builds bridges towards or away from other people. In my very act of remembering I'm doing something about those relationships around me. So how do we remember in a way that builds friendship and reconciliation? What I'm saying here is remembering rightly is not just about the past, it's also about the future. The right kind of remembering is required for the wrongs we commit and not just the wrongs we suffer. Yet you know, and I know, how quickly memory gets distorted, both on the part of those who've done the wrong thing and those who've suffered the wrong thing being done to them. Witness just a small in disagreement infraction between husband and wife, of course I'm not talking personally here this would never happen to me, Mm -hmm. but even half a day after an argument, how easily our memories have changed about what was actually said or the feeling with which it was said memory so quickly easily, when we take it out of just a small thing like a disagreement between a husband and wife, how can we remember rightly about things that have happened in our collective history terrible wrongdoing terrible injustices that continue the answer is our memories need to themselves be redeemed those of us who have done the wrong thing who have perpetrated wrongdoing have to have our memories redeemed those of us who have suffered wrongdoing also must have our memories redeemed I don't have time here to explore the full implications of what I mean by that, but just let me give three instances, three examples of the way remembering can be redeemed. Remembering in a redeemed way means remembering without blaming the victim. That's why we're all familiar with this concept of victim blaming. Remembering, that is, redeemed remembering means remembering without evading for the wrongdoer. You notice how people often fess up to wrongdoing as they also evade responsibility for it? I'm sorry about such and such but I didn't mean it. Thirdly, and I have been Heartbroken to be part of an Anglican church that's had to go through a royal commission and face up to the past and those particular things. One of the things I'm being reminded by that in that particular context is that the community cannot remember rightly, cannot have a redeemed memory if it abandons either victims or wrongdoers. And too often the church wants to wash its hands, pretend it didn't happen, cover up. So redeemed memory in three ways: the victim can remember without being blamed; the wrongdoer can remember without evading responsibility for what happened; and the community, and in this context, the church generally, and maybe the Australian public generally, does not abandon either the victims of the wrongdoing of the past nor those who 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 um who perpetrated the wrong. I'm going to skip ahead because we're running out of time. When we've remembered in that way, there's one more step that we find difficult. We need to interrogate that wrongdoing. It's not enough just to name it. It's not enough just to remember it in the right way. We need to interrogate. We need to ask sometimes hard questions. The narrative in John chapter 21, the story on the beach, continues with this full bed of fish. With sacramental hospitality, Jesus breaks the bread and the fish, And a gracious welcome, Jesus says, come and have breakfast with me. And now in this abundance, the fullness of fire, of food, of friendship, and I suggest here... That our aboriginal brothers and sisters understand much more the meaning of what's going on here what jesus is doing than than we are uh, non-aboriginal people get it's here that peter and the other disciples do they secretly hope that maybe jesus has forgiven and forgotten maybe that denial in the courtyard maybe it's all good he's inviting me to the fire phew Maybe hanging on that cross and being in the tomb and all that, he's forgotten it. I'm off the hook. Fantastic. Yes, Jesus, I'll come to your fire. Thanks for the welcome. All's good. Well, as we know in the ensuing conversation, we actually get to the heart of this story. Gently, yet persistently, Jesus interrogates Peter, not once, not twice, but three times. Do you love me? What will convince Peter, the wrongdoer, to take responsibility for his actions? To name it wrongdoing, the wrongdoing relationally. To remember in a redeemed way, not to evade responsibility as the wrongdoer. John records Jesus asking essentially the same question three times. paralleling the third moment in Saul's encounter with the risen Jesus, there's something going on here. In Saul's encounter, there's a revelation of light, there's a voice from heaven, and then the question, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Rigorous questions shed light on our wrongdoing and is our painful, awkward, but necessary path of repentance towards friendship and reconciliation. As Brooks said consistently, too many of us non-Aboriginal Australians are not awake to the past, to the perils or plight of Aboriginal injustice. We have not been prepared to ask the difficult questions of our history, of dispossession, of destruction and even death of Aboriginal people. We love to rush through this part. We want to rush to the moment of forgiveness and reconciliation, reinstatement in the story. Let's just recognise here that this moment of asking questions that leads to understanding is an essential part. I just can't imagine the relational awkwardness of Peter. as Jesus asked not once, not twice, but three times, do you love me? The outcome, as we know, is reconciliation and reinstatement on the beach. Peter's faith in Jesus, his calling as a disciple, his commission as an apostle have been restored and recreated. Yet notice one more thing, and I'm going to hand back to Brooke. It's not that's all done now, we can go home and sleep easily. On being reinstated, on reconciliation, the obligations Peter once had have now been deepened and extended. From Jesus' first call to follow Jesus, Jesus now said to him, Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt, go wherever you wish. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, there's an image there, and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. And after this he said to him again, follow me. Where Peter ends up is a much deeper fuller understanding of what it means to be a part of those who want to embody the way of following Jesus. And now understand that following this Messiah is also following the crucified one. But following this crucified one something that he couldn't do just three or four days earlier also means following the risen one the Risen One who has restored him and called him again to
1: embody him on the way. Just before I conclude, I said at the beginning, I talked about Royal Commission. The one Royal Commission, uh, and as Aboriginal people, we often have to prioritise because we don't get a lot of space. Uh, So yes, absolutely, those recommendations need to be uh, implemented. The one royal commission that we haven't had in this nation that other nations have gone through um, like South Africa, Canada, is a truth and reconciliation commission uh, where we actually remember rightly as a nation what has happened in this land. Um, those aren't perfect examples. They didn't, some of them didn't go far enough in bringing about justice. Uh, And so that's what we can take their examples and look at in this nation. So we have to dream about what that looks like. But in concluding, for me, love. Love conquers all. Friendship is love for me. Can you hear Jesus' questions to Peter as both a challenge and an invitation to deeper friendship in this land we now call Australia? Do you love me? Feed my peoples. Do you love me? Listen to my peoples. Do you love me? We extend our hand in friendship to you. Will you extend your hand back to us and grab it wholeheartedly in love and sit with us, stand with us and walk with us in love?
2: Only got a few minutes, I'm afraid, for questions. Old preachers have it. But there may be questions.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Can I just ask whether um, the word
1: reconciliation is actually unhelpful for remembering rightly, considering that there was no conciliation from
4: the beginning, apart from maybe a handful of white settlers. And
1: I just wonder whether treaty is a better word actually defining, and that's actually acknowledging that there was conflict and that
4: we actually need firstly a treaty and then, then there's a way forward as the First Peoples of New Zealand
3: have from, from the beginning. Uh, I think
1: um, treaty is one way. I guess when you look at, and I'm passionate about a treaty and treaties. Um, with individual Aboriginal sovereign nations as well as a symbolic national treaty. Uh, But when you look at the examples around the world, treaties are constantly broken as well. We need look no further than Standing Rock um, to see um, how treaty has let down um, Indigenous peoples. I would like to see treaty as a process. We've been calling for it as Aboriginal peoples. It's not a new thing. So many people say, oh, you need to get together as Aboriginal peoples and promote this treaty concept. We've been talking about it for generations after generations. Um, so I think I would love us to start the process. That's what we're calling for. Start the process and let's see what happens. Um, I think the reality of that reconciliation is a word that's been used around the world. Uh, I think to just acknowledge its complexity, um, but also its simplicity, if we look at it as friendship and love. Uh, So let's embrace the word with that, with repentance, and see where we can get to.
0: This is one of many conversations recorded live at Surrender 17 Melbourne. We hope you enjoyed this conversation, and check out our website, surrender.org.au, for more resources and opportunities to get involved.